We're continuing our Sermon on the Mount sermon series this morning. We've been talking through this sermon that Jesus gives us in the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll continue that this morning by reading from Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. Now, at the beginning of Matthew 5, Jesus sees the crowd. He goes up on a mountainside. His disciples and a lot of people come to him, and he begins to teach them. He opens the sermon by saying a number of blessed are statements, which we've been looking at the past few weeks. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Nine times at the beginning of this sermon, Jesus says, blessed are. And after that, you can imagine maybe just a brief pause, and then we come to our reading for today. Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. You, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, How can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds And praise your Father in heaven. This is truly God's word for us today. Well, those first couple words, the first couple words that I read this morning are important to help us understand this text. Do you remember what those words were? At the beginning of verse 13, Jesus says to his disciples, You, you, you are. You are the salt of the earth. And then at the beginning of verse 14, Jesus again says, You, you are the light of the world. And the way those sentences are put in the original Greek really emphasizes you, you yourselves, you my followers, you the people hearing these words, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Not just anybody, not everybody, but you who are listening to these words. So as we've gathered here this morning to hear the word of the Lord, let's again hear these as words spoken directly to us. You, you yourselves are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Jesus speaks those words to us today. So then, let's ask what that means for us. First, Jesus tells us we're the salt of the earth. And what's that image supposed to tell us? Salt can do a lot of different things. Salt can flavor food. It can melt ice. It can condition water. It can kill slugs. It can clean things. It can preserve things. I googled the use of salt this week. And on the first page that pops up on Google, there's websites that claim to give you the 30 uses of salt, the 60 uses of salt, the 47 uses of salt. I thought that one was oddly specific. And then the surprisingly many, the 14,000 uses of salt. Whoever found out all those 14,000 uses, by the way, must have more salt and more time than any of the rest of us do. So salt has a lot of uses, and it can be a little bit of a puzzle to figure out what Jesus means by that short phrase here. But I think, and most of the people who work with this text agree with me, so that's good, I think Jesus wants us to see that salt has a preserving effect. Salt keeps bad things away. Salt 
keeps things good. Salt prevents decay. Salt preserves the world, preserves the good in a world going bad. Salt preserves the good in a world going bad. So then when Jesus tells us that we're to be the salt of the earth, he's saying that we preserve things. He's saying that we prevent decay. He's saying that we preserve what's good in a world going bad. John Stott is a well-known evangelical scholar who wrote a really solid commentary on the book of Matthew. And in his commentary on this text, he compares the world, the way of things out there, the way things usually work to a rotting fish or to an old hunk of meat. Imagine going shopping one hot day over the summer and forgetting a container of hamburger in your car for a week or two afterwards. You can imagine when you open that door again, well, what kind of regret you'd have, but also the stink and the decay and the rottenness that would hit you from that meat. Not a place you want to be. But that's what the world is like apart from God, says Stott. Apart from God, the world stinks. When the world turns away from the things of God, the world falls apart. It decays. It gets rotten. It loses the good in it, and it becomes useless. The world decays like rotten hamburger. But the people of God, the people who belong to Jesus, they're like salt that preserves good in the world. The people of God, the church, is a salt that restrains the world from plunging headlong into decay. The church preserves the good in the world. So part of our call as Christians is to battle for what's right. Jesus here tells us, his followers, to go out into the world and to fight off the decay and the rot and the badness that is out there. You are the salt of the earth. You are called to be an agent for good in this world that is always going bad. Individually, every single one of us is called to be salt in how we live. We're called to fight against what's wrong and to fight for what's right. We need to guard against doing this in abrasive or off-putting or unhelpful ways, but we're called to be different. We're called to push back against the ways of the world. So when we get pressured at work to do those things that aren't, aren't quite right, to do those things that are just on this side or maybe just on the other side of being legal, when we're called to take, when we're pushed to take shortcuts, when we're in those difficult circumstances, we're called to stand strong and to figure out how to do things in the right way. When we're pressured to visit that particular website or to take just, just one hit, just one puff of that particular substance, we're called to stand against the evil there. When we're pushed to join in tearing someone else down, We're called to speak only the truth and even to speak it in love. When we're pressured by the world to consume and consume and consume, to buy more stuff, to define ourselves by the car we drive, the house we live in, by how extravagantly we can spend, we're called to give thanks for our daily bread and to live in a way that meets our real needs and enables us to help others. Individually, we're called to fight against the decay 
and the rot of this world. But it's not enough to just say, I do good in my own little world and I don't look past that. We also are called to seek the good for the broader society that we live in. And so we continue to protest against the legality and the ease of abortion while also having grace for those who find themselves in difficult circumstances. We fight against corruption. We fight against exploitation. We try to promote ways that people can support themselves and their families and can truly live safe and good lives. We vote for people who we think will do the right thing, not just the thing that benefits us most, even if it costs other people. We are the salt of the earth. We are called to preserve the goodness in this world against the decay and the rot that we find there. And we're called to do that in our own lives and also in broader society. We are the salt of the earth. But along with that call to be the salt of the earth, Jesus gives us a warning. Contaminated salt, salt that loses its saltiness, is worthless, he tells us. Contaminated salt is worthless. If the salt loses its saltiness, he says, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Now, in our day and age, we don't really experience salt losing its saltiness. In the last week or two, we were having a meal, kind of a roast and potatoes sort of thing, and our five-year-old Micah got this little grin on his face and asked for the salt and pepper, and he put a little bit of pepper on, and then he put a little bit of salt, and then he put some more salt, and then he put some more salt, and then with that little grin going, he put more and more and more salt until finally there was a little bit of meat and a lot of salt, and then he picked up his fork and he poked a piece of meat, put it in his mouth, and said, I wonder, well, before he put it in his mouth, he said, I wonder what this is going to taste like. I wonder what this is going to taste like. And then he took a dramatic bite, and he said, hmm, tastes like salt. (laughs) Yep, tastes like salt. And do you think anyone around the table was really surprised by that point? Not so much. Salt is salty. When we go to the store and we buy salt, we get fairly pure salt. We go and we buy this bag that says salt, and what it says on the outside is pretty much what's in the bag. It's been processed to take the impurities out. It leaves us with the real thing. In our experience, if you put salt on something, it's going to be salty. It doesn't lose its saltiness. But in Jesus' time, salt lost its saltiness all the time. In Jesus' time, most salt wasn't nicely chemically processed. The way people would get salt would be they'd go out to a salt marsh or to like the Dead Sea in Israel, and they'd kind of scrape up the stuff that collected at the edge. So they'd scrape up this white powder, they'd take it to market, and they'd sell it as salt. And usually there was salt in there, but mixed in with that salt, there were all kinds of other things, all kinds of impurities, all kinds of contaminants. And it was entirely possible that you'd take that salt home and something would happen to it and all the salt would get leached out. You could have salt one week and then the next week it wouldn't be salty anymore. So you'd have this white powder that looked and maybe felt a little bit like salt still, but it wasn't actually good for anything. It didn't add any flavor to food. It didn't help preserve food. It wasn't any good. It was just this useless white powder. And when that happened, sometimes people would throw it along a path, kind of like gravel, or throw it in front of their house, kind of like gravel. But that was really all you could do with it. 
When the salt got contaminated, it lost all of its usefulness. When it lost its saltiness, it wasn't any good anymore except to be thrown out somewhere. And there's a play on words in the original language there behind that phrase, when salt loses its saltiness. That sounds a lot like someone saying, when salt becomes foolish. When salt loses its saltiness, it becomes foolish. When we conform to the world, when our Christianity gets contaminated with the concerns and the issues and the pushiness of the world, we lose our saltiness. We become foolish. We lose our heads. We get all mixed up and honestly kind of stupid. And we often conform to the world without even realizing it. Let me ask you to think about the last couple weeks or the last month or last couple months of, their li- of your life. Have you ever had a situation where you felt squeezed to do something that wasn't right? Have you ever had a situation where you felt like, I should do this, but really what I'm going to do is this? I should be salt here, but it's going to be easier just to go along with what other people are telling me. Now, if you can't think of a situation like that, if you can't think of a time where you felt squeezed by the world, maybe that's a sign that you've lost your saltiness. If you never have to pay a price for doing the right thing, or you never choose to pay that price, maybe you've lost some of your saltiness. Being the salt of the earth is a difficult and challenging calling. In order for us to preserve good in this world going bad, we need to be out there making choices that will cost us something. If we let the world get in our head, we quickly lose our way and we become foolish and even rotten, just like the world around us. So today, Jesus calls us to do good in the world, to preserve what is good out there, but not to be contaminated by the world. You are the salt of the world, says Jesus. Don't lose your saltiness. And then in verse 14, Jesus tells us, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. We're like a city on a hill whose light can't be hidden and shouldn't be hidden. You are the light of the world, and light is precious. Light is precious. I've mentioned this here a time or two before, but I don't think we really understand what light meant in the ancient world or what it means in a lot of the world today. When we want light, we flip a switch and the light comes on. In fact, we get really grumpy if we have to spend a half hour or an hour sometime without light. We are always, always surrounded by light, unless you live in Elmhurst and there's a thunderstorm, but that's a different story. But in the ancient world, light was a precious and valuable thing. Light was something that you would notice. And you'd especially notice a city on a hill. In Jesus' time, cities often were built of a kind of white limestone that would gleam in the sun. And at night, all the lamps would glow off of all the walls and the buildings. And so a city on a hill could not be hidden. Now, of course, if you put a city down deep in a valley maybe then you could hide it. 
when we lived in Africa, we lived out in the middle of nowhere. And so to get to our house, you'd drive down the main road and you'd drive and you'd drive and you'd drive until you got kind of the middle of nowhere and there was this particular tree stump and you'd turn there, missed that a lot because it was kind of an ordinary looking tree stump, but you'd turn at the tree stump, you'd go up and over the hill and then you'd go down to the bottom of the hill and that's where our house was and that's where the Bible school was that I taught at. But if you drove by that place during the day, you could drive by a thousand times and never know what was over that hill. But at night, most of the area was really, really dark. There was no electricity. People would light campfires. They might have some flashlights, but that would be it. It was really, really dark out there. But our school had a big generator that we ran every night for a couple hours, and it would light up the whole place with all kinds of electric lights. And it was the only place for miles on either direction that you would find that. So if you drove by the main road at night, there'd be this sort of glow over the hill. And there were a few times that a couple other teachers and I might be in one of the cities around there, and we'd have to check in with the local police every now and then. And every now and then, if there was a new commander, we'd explain where where we lived. He'd say, oh yeah, when we do a night patrol there, I always wonder what that glow is over the hill, but I never ever check it out. Maybe I'll stop by sometime. Because there was the glow over the hill, he knew something was there, but they never knew exactly what it was, and so they'd never actually go there. Now, I was actually okay with not getting unexpected visitors at night, especially unexpected visitors with guns. Geography was in our favor there. But geographic choices aside, the people of Jesus are supposed to be a light on top of the hill, a light that can be seen clearly, not just sort of a faint glow over down in a valley, but a light on top of the hill. We have something that is precious more than anything else in the world. And we need people to see it. This gift of light is given to us for us to share with the world. This light must illuminate the world by its very nature. This light must illuminate the world. Many of us have grown used to living in the light. Maybe our parents and our grandparents were believers and going on and on back beyond generations we can count. And we just live in this sense that we belong to Jesus. There's a right way to live and we're living in it. We take a lot of things for granted. And that is a wonderful gift and something to give thanks for. But the world out there, a lot of people out there just don't have that. The world often doesn't have any sense of meaning or purpose in life. The world often doesn't have any real sense that people can care for each other and love each other and take care of each other for anything besides selfish reasons. There is so much that the world does not understand. The world needs to hear the gospel. It needs to see the light. And sometimes we need to be reminded too just how great the gospel is and just how life-changing it can be we can get used to just hanging out in the light ourselves and never really sharing it with the world and often we actually kind of want to keep the light to ourselves if you think about our houses or you walk around your neighborhood at night people here pretty much always have blinds and curtains on the window and they're pretty much always closed right When it gets dark, everybody shuts up their house and keeps the light inside. 
And then we often tend to hang out in our family rooms, in our basements, so we have even more privacy and where the light can be even more hidden. And as long as we're just talking about physical light and what room you're hanging out in your house, that's fine. But when it comes to our spiritual light, when we try to keep that private, when we draw the blinds on our spiritual lives, when we keep this light to ourselves, we're working against its very nature. A city on a hill shouldn't be and can't be hidden. You don't light a light and put it under a basket. When Jesus tells us that we're the light of the world, you can be sure he was not intending for us to hide that light away. If we try to withdraw from the world, we lose our ability to draw people from the, to the Lord. When we build our cities down in the valley, when we close our blinds and we don't let our light shine before the world, we lose part of who we are. We lose part of who Jesus calls and equips us to be. So when Matthew 5 tells us that we're the light of the world, there's a call there and there's a warning there. The call is for us to share Jesus, to share the ways of God with the world. And the warning, the warning is that as the light of the world, we can't and we shouldn't be hidden. We can be respectful and well-timed in our witness, but we cannot be hidden and we cannot be silent. And so Jesus calls us to be the light of the world. Be the light of the world. You are the light of the world. But there's a danger in reading texts like this and preaching texts like this. It's good for us to hear this text speak to us and tell us, you are the light of the world. Go out and be the light. We should hear the call of this text. But if we stop there, then this sermon is all about us. It's all about how we need to go out and we need to do this and we need to do that. How we need to be a city on a hill. How we need to preserve good in the world. And those are all true. Those are all good things to say, but they're only part of the picture. We need to hear Jesus speaking to us in this text. But even more than that, we need to look at Jesus through this text. More and more, we need to move from looking at who we are to looking at who God is and who God makes us into. Our light is not our own. Our light comes from God and points back toward Him. Our light comes from God and points back toward Him. The Sermon on the Mount is not really about how we can live better lives here on earth. That's part of it. And part of it is about making earth a better place. But really, really, if you walk out of here and all you feel like is, oh yeah, I'm going to live a better life, we've missed the point. If we walk out of here and all we think is, oh man, my life is terrible, I could never measure up, we've missed the point. This sermon, this call that Jesus gives us, it's not just about us working harder and doing our best or us just feeling condemned like we could never live up to this call. It's not about that. Ultimately, this sermon is about living with Jesus and living for Jesus and living in the way of Jesus. It's about living in God's kingdom and the goodness that is to be found only there. 
It is about bringing praise and glory to God. We act as the light in this world, not because we've figured out the best way to live on our own and because other people need to be like us. We're the light in the world because God has given us the light and we show that light because we want other people to have the gospel. Because we want other people to know Jesus who makes everything different and everything better. We are the light because God has loved us and because he calls us to love other people. That's our true motivation. That's where all of this has to start and end. Our lives take on a certain shape because God first loved us and we respond by loving him and then going out and loving our neighbor. That's really what it means to be salt and light. We are salt and light because we reflect the goodness that God has given us. We don't ever as Christians want people to look at us and say, oh wow, what good people you are. Oh wow, you're such a wonderful person. Isn't that great? Well, it's good to be a wonderful person, but that's not what we want people to see when they look at us. We want people to look at us and see God reflected in us. We want our lives, our light, to show other people our Savior. We like to look like pretty together people. That's one of the challenges and the curses of suburban living. We like to look like we've got our act together. We like to dress up and look good. And that's fine. But I wonder how our lives might look different if we weren't so concerned with how we look and more focused on Jesus and how to spread his light in the world. This text is about our lives, but it's not ultimately about our lives. It's about the good things that we're called to do, but it's not ultimately about the good things we're called to do. It's about how our lives can reflect the goodness and the light that we found in Christ. It's about how we can share that light with a world that is so broken and so dark. I'm going to conclude today with a few questions for you. A few questions for you maybe to reflect on today, this week. I don't honestly know how, how we would answer these questions. I don't know what the answer would be for you, but I think these are questions worth asking. What would your life look like? What would our church look like? What would our lives together look like if we were truly to be salt and light in this world? What would change? What would be the same? And how are you? And how are we together holding on to good in this world? What are we doing to preserve the good in this world going bad? And how are we spreading light in this world? How are you spreading light in this world? A city on a hill can't be hidden. How are our lives shining before the people of this world so that they can be drawn in to glorify our Father in heaven and to live also as his children? Jesus tells us that we are the salt of the earth. He tells us that we are the light of the world. May our light shine before the world 
because God has made us his people and in order to draw people in to praise our Father in heaven.